It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is Marcel Botha, founder and CEO of 10X Beta and an entrepreneur extraordinaire. Marcel Botha is an architect, investor, and entrepreneur. And at 10X Beta, he specializes in guiding product development teams from concept to viable product, and is currently locked in a wave of parallel experimentation. Marcel works to build expert multidisciplinary teams to solve unique complex problems by leveraging a global network of manufacturing partners and has developed hundreds of products over the years. Over the last 14 years, 10X Beta has helped numerous medical professionals test, develop, and commercialize products from a full range of surgical instruments. Marcel was born and raised in South Africa and attended Nelson Mandela University, as well as MIT in Boston. He currently lives and works in New York City. Marcel Botha, welcome into the corner office. Good day. Thanks for having me. Good to have you here. Good to have you here. We're uh, talking to each other across the boroughs. Uh, I'm in Manhattan. I believe you're in Brooklyn today. Is that correct? Uh, that is correct. Yes. Uh, All right. Well, the Brooklyn Navy Yard on a good day. <laughs> All right. Well, we're both far from home. I knew that you were born and grew up in South Africa. I was born and grew up in California, and yet we're so close but so far away. But uh, we had an opportunity to meet this summer in Oxford, of all places, at a wonderful one-week conference. And uh Great to reconnect with you again, and I'm sure we'll touch on a little bit about our Moonshots experience, but we always like to start the podcast at the beginning, and for you, that would be you know, your homeland, where you grew up. Tell us a little bit about your early family life, brothers and sisters, mom and dad, and you know, what you did as a kid. Oh, it's, um, it was a wonderful childhood. I was uh, mm. born in 77. Um, I'm the oldest of three. I have a brother nice. and a sister, one of each. And I have, uh, my early childhood was mostly spent doing crazy things that uh, wouldn't be allowed today. Or <laughs> uh, you care to go into any detail? <laughs> well, yes, uh, I was an avid scientist from a very uh -huh. young age and wow. in, a budding engineer. And uh, right. my dad bought me a book for when I was five or six, when I just started reading, uh, called uh, Home Experiments for Young Scientists. Oh my but, goodness, how fun is that? Jeez. <laughs> but, but this is not like today's STEM uh, education uh, right, right. Uh, subscriptions or box kits. This had literally had all the steps to make, you know, from a steam powered boat, which is on the modest wow. um, and safe side, 
to the, um, how to make your own gunpowder and gunpowder. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> and, and build a fuse to trigger it with a remote detonator. <laughs> oh gosh, so I love it. I love it. it and a, you did them all, was, I, I imagine. <laughs> yes, it was colorful. It was. Uh, I um, I was easily bored. I was racing. I was doing a lot of adrenaline sports from a young age. I yeah. did BMX racing from age five. Nice. And I remember a scene when um, my kids love the story, but I was um, in my little uh, polyester motocross suit at home. <laughs> I was age seven one day and I'd spent three days designing and building a dirt ramp in the backyard. We had a big yard and was my mom would get, let me get away with building a ramp in the far corner. I and that. I jumped over it two or three times and I, and I was like, this is so boring. I need to make it like a cartoon. So I built a bonfire, a giant bonfire, <laughs> and folded, uh, covered the wood in gasoline, the logs. Oh, my God. And set it on fire. And then I jumped through the fire once or twice, <laughs> only for my dad to arrive home in absolute uh, you know, disgust. Like, what are you doing, kid? Because this old suit that I was wearing was not flame Polyester. retardant. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Ready to go and it didn't and catch play. fire, but it could have. That was the issue, right? Could have, could have. Yes. Oh my gosh! So I have oh, this. I, uh, I have this photo from that era, like uh, when I was six or seven, wearing that same outfit that I <laughs> jumped through the flames with. So I, I, I have it blown up in my office. So it reminds me, you know, of um, you know the risks that we take. Yeah, absolutely. Now, was your dad a scientist? What what promoted him to provide a book of that ilk at such an early age? Uh, my dad is a surgeon. He specializes okay. in endoscopic surgery. He was one of the pioneers right. of the, um, of that field in South Africa in the in the eighties and nineties. But um, I come from a medical family. My mom was an ICU right. nurse before she became oh, wow. an artist. My yeah. dad was a surgeon. Uh, my uh, my grandfather was an inventor, architect, uh, school teacher. Um, a lot of a lot of the making come, comes from my mom's side of the yeah, family. Yeah. Um, yeah. All her brothers were in um, some um, mashup of engineer or of engineering <laughs> or design, and uh, the, the, that uh, and uh, commerce of some sort. And no uh, doubt, a few daredevils in there too. I imagine, right? That did that run oh, through very, her side of the blood? <laughs> very much, very much so. I think it was on both sides. So the family lo loved speed and uh, just the general impatience with the speed of the rest of society. Yeah, yeah. Cape Town, Johannesburg, what, what part of South Africa are you from? I was born in a tiny town, and then when I was nine, uh, eight or nine, we moved to uh, Cape Town. To Cape Town, And right. my dad was studying. He was um, finishing his residency to become a surgeon. Uh, my parents were very young. They were 21 and 23 when I was born. So wow. by the time uh, my dad was a very successful GP, that then decided to study surgery, and that was a five-year program. So by the time we moved to Cape Town, um, you know, I was I, I was already a kid going to my teenage years, but my dad was a full-time student. Right. So right. it was colorful. It made yeah. me um, sort of understand the early days of uh, the value of a buck because I had to make my own money. Sure. And, um, you know, my dad encouraged me to, you know, go and deliver newspapers and uh, do things that make money outside the house because that expands the economic uh, economics, um, right. like OPM, other people's money. Versus right, right, money. absolutely. <laughs> so he had interesting ways of, uh, 
of motivating me. Encouraging that. that. <laughs> yeah, encouraging that. So it was a, the South African currency is rand. It used right. to be very strong, uh, to, uh, strongly correlated to the dollar and gold value. Right. Today, today it's extremely weak, but by comparison, but he would offer me one rand for every rand that I made from other people. Wow, nice. Washing cars or um, delivering newspapers or working in a store. And um, that's a was, great matching program. Huh? It works. It works if your kid, <laughs> uh, if your kid is not paying attention. But I, I very quickly made him regret his, his offer. <laughs> I um, imagine. <laughs> which to, today is a great story, but I think uh, he, he, was, he didn't uh, intend for it to have such a positive effect. Oh, I love it. Were you a good student in school or, or too busy doing entrepreneurial things? No, I was a good student. Um, well, let me rephrase that. I could have been a much better student. Hmm. I was, um, you know, in most cases... I, uh, I was really good in math and science, yeah. so that came naturally without right. much effort. So I could get straight A's um, or A's and B's for most things without trying. It was when I, uh, when I applied myself, it's, that's when uh, I really excelled. Yeah. Um, but I was also in a very academic school growing up, so, um, but with doing very little, if you, uh, I did well enough to, um, to still be a great student. The things that I was that I was passionate about myself, like the science and um, sort of mathematics, depending on the teacher and art, I excelled in and got sort of near hundred percent marks in those mm -hmm. things when, yeah. when I needed to. But um, I once remember an incident where I was uh, in South Africa when you are in um, not that uh, I think the tenth grade. Um, no, is it the tenth grade or the ninth grade? You, I think it's the ninth grade. You still have to take biology and um, right. geography and all these sort of non-elective subjects. And it was the last time I was going to write um, sort of my geography, uh, not, or no, it wasn't geography. It was history. It was a history exam. And it was the last time I had to do a history exam in 1991. And I was called into the principal's office. They were like, "Why?" <laughs> Did you go from 7580 to 96? Did you cheat? Mm. And I said, no, I just studied for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you finally got some interest in it, right? Well, yeah. So, yeah, I have a near photographic memory when it comes mm. to um, consuming information. So, right, if, I, if, right. I spend a, if, I, if I pay attention in class or I read, um, I read something and take notes, I'm going to retain the majority the of that information, and yeah, yeah. that's just it's one of my uh, definitely um, good superpowers. traits to have. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's a superpower. Just yeah, the, uh, uh, adulthood and sleep deprivation with three small kids have definitely affected that. But, um, <laughs> I can imagine. It's uh, yeah. I grew up a very curious child. Lots of mm. Lego, lots of building stuff, lots of yeah. inventing things. I was fascinated with James Bond, but not for James Bond more for Q when I was a kid. Yeah, all the devices, huh? I uh, almost got expelled out of school in uh, the sixth grade <laughs> for building a crossbow and taking it to school. And they, luckily, oh. the principal was my um, neighbor's two doors down, and he observed this, uh, the, the weapon. 
I supposedly brought to school. <laughs> and he, um, he was fascinated. He asked me if I built it myself. He actually explained the design to him. I explained that my dad helped me with the first design, but that wasn't a good design. I just had to wait for my dad to leave so I can build a better design. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I was constantly pushing the boundaries, but mm. in a, in, not in a, um, I would say no, no, not not in an anarchistic sort yeah. of like, um, aggressive negative uh, way. Yeah. Negative way, but it just yeah. you know rules are just made to be broken. Right. I learned right. something from that. I love it. So, sports? Was, do you have sports interests? You mentioned your BMX bike. Were there? Did you play team sports at all? Or was it more individual stuff growing up? I did. I did both. I yeah. um, I grew up uh, playing rugby until um, sort of like end of elementary school. I played field hockey. I played goalie or back. I did mountain bike uh, racing, uh, mm. both trail and downhill. Nice. I did full contact karate for 11 years. That was my favorite of all everything I did. Wow. Yeah. I was just shy of a brown belt for that, and I was. Um, it's something that I uh, that I've been contemplating picking back up, but I would effectively have to restart because the last time I did it was in my 20s. Right. Right. And. Um, I, uh, yeah, I uh, also did a lot of road, uh, um, road biking as mm. about 20 miles a day before school. Wow. wow. Awesome. Awesome. Now you went on to Nelson Mandela university. Was it, was it called that, uh, at the time of your youth? Um, so, obviously grew up during apartheid, right. And, and that changed while you were still living in, in South Africa, did it not? Yeah. So I uh, went to high school in 1990 mm -hmm. and, um, that was, uh, so both uh, Mandela was released, apartheid was abolished, and Mandela right. became the president all during the time that I was in high school. In high school, yeah. And right. the schools opened up. So you know, I right, had this right. conversation um, the other day, and like just, you know, navigating as a, as a high school kid, um, schools um, no, no longer being segregated. And it was actually right. beautiful to see yeah. how, um, how the kids manage much better than the adults mm. the um we had no anxiety about integration it was just your your kids from uh you know another walk of life that are joining us and if you can just have a conversation with them you'll, re you'll realize that you're actually not that different you have a lot more in common yeah 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 same age groups enjoyed the same things and uh you know it's um we had um i i, I, I was in two different high schools uh, during that period, because I was in boarding school for two months, testing mm -hmm. that out, but I there wasn't a good fit with boarding school. I didn't really. Um, boarding school has too many rules because teachers and other adults are responsible for a larger group of children. So right. it's, I felt like it was more like prison than yeah. uh, <laughs> a place that I wanted to be in. And also, they didn't uh, allow me the freedoms that I had in the, living in the city and mm -hmm. um, and being in a, in a in a sort of like an urban school and. Um, or, yeah, also, it was a co I was in a co-ed school before and then was an all-boys school uh, for boarding school that was focused just on rugby. And I was, I went from being an average performer, like a high average performer in a very academic school, one of the top schools in the country, to the best academic kid in my class uh, for two months. And I'm like, Dad, this is not the right place for me. Yeah, <laughs> learning you think. Right, right. Exactly. So, uh, so were, were, was the high school integrated or was college integrated then when you went? High school was integrated, both high of those high schools uh, from yeah. 92 onwards. Yeah. And then college wasn't fully integrated. College was actually where the Nelson Mandela University, where I went, was one of the most progressive um, mm. universities at the time. Uh, yeah. All the all the predominantly English-speaking 
universities uh, were more progressive than the Afrikaans universities at that time. Right. I chose to, I had options to go to Cape Town, University of Cape Town or Stellenbosch or Pretoria and chose to go to the University of Port Elizabeth at the time, later called the Nelson Mandela University, right. Right. Um, to study architecture. Um, and it was between studying architecture and studying um, medicine, uh, becoming a doctor. Um, those were the two main yeah. uh, aspirations I had. Why, why architecture? Tell us about your choice of pattern. Well, I, I wanted to not do bog standard engineering. I were, a lot of the engineering disciplines I thought were, um, were not creative enough. I wanted to study product development or product design, but all the product design programs at the time were at um, uh, sort of technical institutes, not universities. Mm. And, you know, my, I had a conversation with a couple of um, uh, adults, like my dad and some of his uh, colleagues, to really understand that if I wanted to go study internationally, what would be the minimum requirement in terms of education threshold? So right. I chose a school that was the, the highest rated design uh, program um, in architecture at the time, and um, that was my, my, that was my stepping stone for entering a career in sort of um, in sort of te technical um, studies. It was one of the right. leaders in right. um, uh, computer-aided design at the time in the in the 90s in South Africa, and far exceeded most of uh, what I you know when I arrived in London in 2000 definitely far exceeded what the international community were doing at the architecture school level. But I hmm. knew from a very, uh, from very early on, 97 onwards, that I was not going to stay in architecture, that it was, it was my vehicle for entering your foundation development yeah. and yeah. A, yeah. A, sort of a larger focus on sort of like the, the design entrepreneurship, I should rather say. Now, did you take a job in South Africa before coming over to the U S cause I know you did some, uh, some studies at MIT or did you just continue on with your education and then begin your career over here? I was a professional student for most of my 20s. The, the, that doesn't mean that it didn't work. So I, right, on sure. average, worked about 100 hours a week, every week of my life um, right. uh, during my 20s. But that was a combination of studies, um, part-time work and um, uh, entrepreneurship activities to pay for school. Yeah. Um, and so I went to South Africa, London, London was three, three and a half years, right. Milan, um, and Milan was a short stint at Domus Academy where I wanted to do a master's. And then a great, great friend, Trevor Hardy, um, in 2001, sent an email to four of us at the time. Uh, three of us were, I think we were all in London at the time. And um, I was just in Milan for a hot second. And he said, come to MIT, come and see the 3D printing mm -hmm. research that's happening at the Media Lab. And he was there on a Fulbright scholarship, and that was the bug that got me to get on a plane, go and check out what's yeah. happening at MIT, and I fell in love with the place. Yeah. It was yeah. just, uh, and you know, juxtaposed from two weeks earlier being in Milan at the Domus Academy, which, where I already had a master's position allocation, it was just a fantastic, um, the, the dichotomy between the napkin, uh, napkin sketches and cappuccinos in Milan <laughs> and the hands-on deep engineering yeah. research um, at um, at MIT and the Media Lab. So, you knew that um, was your place. Yeah. Yeah, I knew that was home. At least, even yeah. if it was a future home. 
tell us a little bit about the entrepreneurial activities that kind of, you know, kept the, kept the glue or rather kept you in school through all those years, obviously helping to finance as well as honing your entrepreneurial skills. What type of things were you doing? And, and was dad still matching a rand to a rand at that time? Oh no, he he bailed on that. Uh, he bailed on that system while, while I was in high school. Uh, there, there was there was a time that I was actually making more money than him um, in my high school years, and I sort of like had to um, had to sort of like um, kind of hide it or <laughs> right, not uh, right. vocalize it. So, you know, it's a yeah, little not, bit not, kind of be braggadocious. Yeah, right. Yeah, and it was uh, because he was a student, right? Imagine a sure, student with right. uh, with a TA, sure. TA or RA stipend. That was my dad at the yeah. time. Yeah, I've also right. been a TA with an RA stipend, but without kids. <laughs> so right. yeah, it, it yeah, was very different. Yeah. And so, um, what were those? What were those entrepreneurial things you were doing? Yeah, so I um, I turned uh, delivering newspapers in our in our neighborhood into a tiny yeah. little. Um, uh, I would say, oh, what would I call it? I, I optimize for scale. So I, um, I sign my, uh, my siblings up for newspaper delivery, even though they've never delivered a single newspaper in their life. But just so <laughs> that I could get part, past the threshold, um, there was a limit on how much one kid could deliver. And I figured sure. out I could deliver at least three people's worth of newspapers in one hour before school. Um, so, I, and so that was my first um, sort of... Uh, restructuring or reframing of the rules to um, yeah. so they were your first employees then too they younger, were they were they were merely pro yeah. uh, proxy uh, owners and i um, <laughs> and my mom was my mom was really impressed that i took them with me every uh, friday to go and collect the money at the at the newspaper because i was such a good brother but i just bought them sweets and then um, uh, I, I collected all the money <laughs> and uh and then when that got older, like you know, as a as a teenager, I, I, we were very much into mountain bike racing and uh, buying mm. and reselling bikes and uh, bike parts, and that was um, fun for a while. But at university was um, when we sort of started taking off. I um, I was the head of the student uh, student council or the artistic student council for my group. Mm. Uh, when I was at university, and um, the university had a lot of rules around how you're allowed to have a party and when you're allowed to have a party and what uh, what amount of your budget you're allowed to use to buy alcohol and um, you know to host the party. Right. So the, the, the standard money in, money out, like how much right, you're going right. to make. And and um, the school was a notorious party school, so um, I figured out very quickly that I'm instead of going through the hurdles of having to ask for permission all the time. We'll merge throwing the best parties with also sponsoring um, all the costs, the capital outlay for, mm -hmm. for setting up the party and then also uh, recoup all the profits. There you go. So yeah. uh, so started doing that. Um, did some marketing uh, work initially for um, Diesel Clothing, the, the clothing brand, uh, oh, one yeah. of their subsidiary uh, or franchise um, locations there. And then ended up... Um, Having that fund, some of some of my other colorful uh, experiments um, ran <laughs> uh, ran a model building company um, before uh, computer aided design was a big thing yeah. uh, in South Africa. Um, physical architectural models were still very expensive to build because it's a lot of labor, a lot of precision. Our school, however, was one of the best model building program um, architecture schools in the country, mm. if not the best by far. Um, and 
I was able to employ up to seven students at a time to build models for the commercial sector. Wow. Um, and uh, we would basically take the most expensive model building studio in the country and, um, and just cut their bed in half, and that was our bed. And um, <laughs> so it didn't really have to dig into pricing models and marketing. Right. We were word of mouth. We could only do one of these big things at a time. But we had the tenacity to get to get it done while also doing schoolwork. So it, yeah. uh, it was uh, it was an, um, an interesting time. Right. Paid for school that way myself from mm -hmm. um, third year onwards, uh, between the marketing um, uh, the marketing job and uh, the model building job. And what this did it did, taught me how to do um, you know really deal with the complexity of doing multiple things at the same time. Right but also gave me the budget to buy some of the best tools that the average student wouldn't be able to afford. Mm, mm. So, um, so that was my first foray into starting to build, you know, they were build a little ecosystem of um, development around me. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, fast forward to MIT. And in London, I did very little entrepreneurial stuff. I was really working nonstop. But um, when I arrived in MIT, it was, it's an expensive place if you don't have a full ride scholarship. Right, I did receive right. an NSF fellowship, which was a f fully paid scholarship in my second year based on the first year performance. But I was really worried in that first year. And then um, a friend called and said, listen, we have this consulting gig. It's kind of weird. We need an architect, somebody with 3D modeling experience um, to come and help us figure out the silicon wafer manufacturing um, methodology or sequence. Hmm for hmm. a new display technology that came out of MIT that was eventually sold to Qualcomm. Hmm. Now, you know, I can't, I predict that I made about $80,000 from that job over the years that I was involved with them, but it was only working on Thursdays for uh, two to four hours. Wow. And, that, um, and that paid for school. Nice. Sometimes it would overflow to Saturday mornings. But to secretly yeah. disappear, uh, you know, from the studio on a Thursday afternoon and go and work in Andover, Massachusetts. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, at the time it was, um, I was on F1, so you're not supposed to work. And now right, I, obviously right. now I'm a citizen, so all that's forgiven in hindsight. But yeah. I set up a company uh, with my then, uh, with my then uh, partner, uh, and, we, uh, and it was just the consulting company that did uh, patent consulting and innovation consulting. For whoever yeah. wanted access, um, if that I was patents now, pending, correct or or uh, no? That was uh, what was that? That was called Venbot. Uh, Venbot, okay. Uh, Venbot. Ven, Ven <laughs> it was like the first consulting company that I did in the U.S. And uh, yeah, it was just right. just paid for school. That's what it did. Yeah, um, yeah. Paid taxes, yeah, paid for school, maybe occasional right. meal, and. Um, then, um, yeah, patient spending was, uh, was f f fast forward in 2009, um, but, but I'm skipping a step. So we, out of MIT, in my last year of MIT, um, I was supposed to, I was pursuing a dual degree. So uh, computational design as well as a uh, media lab degree. In my second year or start of my second year of the media labs program, um, I was already accepted for the PhD. I decided to... Um, to leave uh, early before before starting the PhD and completing the second degree to start my first uh, company with friends. I was there, I was effectively their first uh, employee. And then we uh, became the COO of that company over time. Mm. But we had um, a, the, what was an IoT company before IoT was a thing. 
It was referred to as a Web3 company for social networking, um, so the, the social networking of pets and building oh. the state classification and real-time connectivity solutions that allow you to, to track pets in real time. So it predates huh. Foursquare, Facebook, Nike Plus, Nike Plus, and all these um, you know, fitness trackers that we have today uh, right. by 10 years. Wow. But we were a little bit too naive at that point on how we could chop up the technology and sell it to multiple stakeholders across multiple industries. We were just so um, hung up on, <laughs> on building this pet business, which right. then was uh, our investment that year was the biggest investment in the space by far um, because it wasn't tracked yet. It was about $6 million, I think, that we received for building that company initially. Today or 2019, the last time I checked, it was $600 million a year. Wow. And so products like Fi and others uh, were built on sort of like, um, they are simpler, cheaper versions of what we initially built wow. in that space. Wow. Was that RFID technology or what, what, what was the, the basics? Yeah, there? it was one of the first partnerships with TI and their use of active RFID chips. So it's a powered mm. RFID technology, which right, has right. Um, a much better broadcast range. And it's, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was definitely a precursor to the BLE um, technologies that we know today. Yeah, fascinating. So, you know, you kind of made some decisions along the way of starting your own businesses, being your own boss, and then going and work for others. Was that a tough transition? Because you've done that a couple of times, I think, over the course of your career. Yeah, I'm not a good employee. I'm like, <laughs> I, I think entrepreneurs joke that they are unemployable. Right. But I, um, I like to take ownership and I like to also share the upside. Yeah. Um, I'll, uh, I'll do whatever it takes to succeed and get the job done. But I also want to share in the upside of what we're doing. Right. So if um, as an employee that's just collecting a paycheck, uh, you know, biweekly or monthly, I um, really easily get bored. Yeah, and um, yeah. look at the look at the next thing. What am I going to do? So when I was in London, while I said I wasn't uh, that entrepreneurial, I did a lot of architectural competitions. I did I did a, every weekend. If I wasn't working, I would be working on an uh, on an architectural competition hmm. for submission, um, either product design or architectural um, design. And uh, yeah, we did this AIDS clinic for um, the solution for uh, for uh, for mobile AIDS clinic. Africa for architecture for humanity. This was the end of 2002. Mm. That was picked up by the UN. Um, I think you know UN Chronicle wrote about it. And because we go, we were not selected to win that competition. We got an honorable mention, but they felt that we were too critical of some the South African government for how they were treating mm. access to AIDS treatment at the time. This is 2002, mm. so 20 years ago. Right. And then it was a blind um, judging. So when after they had decided that we were too critical, they also realized that we both, uh, even though we were from the UK, both of the uh, entrants were South African. Mm. And uh, obviously then the organizers invited us, uh, invited us out to New York and I came to New York in 2002 in the dead of, dead of the winter season, like mm. November, December, then about this time, <laughs> and snow on the ground and you know, not, not really <laughs> mentally prepared for how cold it is, how much colder it is than London at the time. Right. But loved, loved it. We were here for three days uh, over a weekend and um, 
just had a it was a fantastic experience to to yeah. be part of that and we uh, and we did that often we won a lot and participated in every competition we could won a lot of them always did it with a team um that uh, i've known for 30 years now wow. um, the, the guys that i went to undergrad with yeah, um, yeah. so um you, so so it was this very successful um, camaraderie. Think tank, yeah. think tank yeah. camaraderie think tank. that did these yeah. fun things over time. Oh, and then our ca- ca- careers diverged. So all of us left architecture, went hmm. into finance and real estate and solar and um, yeah, entrepreneurship, but we're all still friends today. So it was, yeah. uh, it was yeah. an interesting time. Well, tell us about 10X Beta. Um, you've been doing this for about 14, 15 years. What, what led up to it? And then tell us a little bit about the company and, and your you know, current trajectory with it. Yes, 10X Beta was really my own response to the, these entrepreneurial um, startup projects where mm. I got bored and annoyed with the idea of having to build a new team every time I start a new company. Yeah. So I, because it's a lot of energy wasted and assuming that the talent pool is infinite is not a really um, it's not a re- it's not really the truth. If you cu- culturally and professionally work well with a certain group of people, you should keep working with them and keep building things. That's right. Them. Yeah. Yeah. So we well, came so out many doing... so many CEOs and C suites take people with them when they go to new organizations. I you know you know I work in executive recruiting and. Well, I always ask the question why they transition. And usually if they're in the C-suite, they say, well, we got a new CEO <laughs> and he brought in his team and it happens. And it, it is a very ineffective way because you lose, I think, a lot of momentum when those things happen. Yes, totally. And um, I wanted to build, um, you know, I came out of doing crowdsourced innovation in 2009, 2010 with some experiments with McDonald's and Starbucks and others in the ad mm. industry where we looked at product innovation as it overlays with big brands. And I wanted to start a thing that was, you know, framing sort of my sweet spot, always in beta. So 10X beta yeah. was born. Yeah. Okay. And um, it, um, and I sort of set out to do just a whole slew of parallel experiments across um, cancer diagnostics and more drug delivery adherence um, and, uh, you know, ad tech, um, automotive tech, aerospace, and over time figure out like what are the things that we love doing? What are the things that we uh, find meaningful? And from a move from a generalist agency to a highly specialized agency doing med tech. And mm. the big change uh, for us was in 20, so 2019, it was uh, probably my worst year ever professionally because I had to step out of working as an entrepreneur in this tiny small company and dealing with um, a house fire that we had uh, here in Greenpoint in, uh, in Brooklyn mm. and um, being away from work. And, you know, if you're the primary biz dev leader for, for your unique skill set and you suddenly step out, um, <laughs> you also don't make money. So you yeah, realize the real stops. Sort of, I mean, yeah. yeah, the real stops and suddenly, you know, when, when you look back at the data and like, oh shit, we lost $800,000 because I was out of the office 400 hours. Yeah, right. And, um, right. and things, things, some things need to give. But uh, but I was dealing with that house fire and that economic impact of that, and also, but also came to great realizations that year. I was um, it's my first 
near me, the group uh, through which we met, Building of Giants. I right. realized that I can't scale the company if I don't build the uh, professional structures in place that allow us to uh, to scale. So mm. I went and um, found uh, found a business partner and co-founder for the next stage of uh, what we're going to build, which is the mm. 10x uh, Beta Venture Studio. I um, f- narrowed our focus to medtech. Um, yep. and getting ready to you know, do more of the stuff that we really loved in a space where we add, we're adding outsized value. We won a big award for one of our drug delivery devices with the publicist Health Garage. It was a one and a half million dollar marketing prize. Right. And um, we were also on the Inc. 5000 list of fastest growing companies up until right before that point. So it was right. a it was a great moment, and then we entered the pandemic. Yeah, um, right. and then the pandemic hit the next year. Yeah, yeah. and you're like, "Whoa, what are we going to do?" And then within two days of um, getting ready to work from home, um, the mayor's office and the EDC contacted New Lab, and they said we need somebody to run the ventilator um, backup program for New York uh, City. Who's right. going to do that? Wow. And New Lab said, "It's Marcel. You've got to." have him lead this. So we set up a consortium yeah. of companies, um, three companies here in New York City, um, set up an innovation manufacturing site where everything can be vertically integrated. Mm. And we were able to design a new ventilator and got to get it through FDA um, emergency authorization in 30 days. And we wow. shipped, uh, and we shipped 3,000 units to New York City. Wow. That, wow. And that was, that was early 2020? 2020, 2021. Yeah, April 17th, yeah. we had succeeded already. Wow. Of Fantastic. 2020. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, most, a lot of people got EUA approval uh, or EUA, emergency use authorization. Right. Very few people shipped and no one shipped at scale. So yeah. we, um, and that was set up in a unique way where we uh, said we were treated, treated the approach or the project as entrepreneurs. We retained the IP in the company, and uh, the, mm. the, the conversation with the city was, we will do whatever it takes to deliver in 30 days or, or around 30 days, but you have to change the way you interact with us as a new company with no, with no history, because we set up a consortium, so three companies form one new right. company for right. this effort, and you have to transact with us in real time, because... The average uh, city, state, or federal um, bureaucracy will not pay you in real time for anything. Yeah, 30, 60, so 90 we, days. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we spent $4.8 million on R&D in 30 days and about $10 million in parallel with that on manufacturing over a course of 60 wow. days. So the project was done, wow. start to finish done in uh, 60 to 90 days. Yeah, yeah. And is that company still, that consortium still in, in business today, or did you wind that down as the pandemic so, was receding? So interesting thing is that we um, we learned a lot of what was missing in the low-cost low, low ventilation space as an alternative right. method for ventilation. Uh, right. express, I expressed to the FDA's um, uh, respiratory group that we will be back and we will file for a de novo application for this device. And um, last year we spent... Uh, well, then last year and this year, we actually miniaturized the technology down mm. from a 110-pound device on a stand um, to a six-pound device that's portable, same technology, same control system. Wow. Um, and we are now miniaturizing, miniaturizing it for uh, ambulance, ER, yeah. and military field hospital use. So right. we, are, uh, we should have it 
submitted for clearance sometimes uh, sometime in 2023 but we are um, we are actively looking at how to button up that technology and sell it as a bolt-on acquisition yeah. or as an independent yeah. company and two of the three original um, consortium members are still active in the company wow. today. So this is a real case study of what 10x beta does, right? You, you identify a specific need, pull the resources together, and then make it happen in, in, in record time or warp speed, as they say. Yes, we, uh, we, we are um, what uh, Albert Kwan out of Stanford calls us the SEAL Team 6 of medical devices. <laughs> I it's love like, it. Uh, we're not big. We're 25 people. Yeah. But we are going to outperform Atronix and GE um, on a pure speed basis. And it's like an um, innov innov innovation speed basis every day, every day, every time. I love it. Are you having um, fun? Are you, are you keeping challenged personally and professionally? Uh, yeah, I'm very challenged. It's like yeah. we are going through a very interesting moment right now where we are taking this traditional service business and wrapping it into a formal venture studio. We're raising our wow. first investment capital so that we can reinvest into our own projects and control the uh, speed and access to capital while keeping it hyper lean. Yeah. And we have about 18 deals lined up for um, existing and future deals for the next two years. Super. So far Super. exceeding our original goal of just yeah. five years. Wow. Fantastic. Well, Marcel, we're just about out of time. This has been fascinating. I, I love the overview. But we always ask, have one last question. We always ask all our CEO guests. And you know, that's kind of what kind of career and life advice would you give someone that maybe has their eyes on their own corner office someday like yourself or, or the entrepreneurial tendencies to go down that road? Yes, I, I would say that I don't sit in the corner office. I sit in the corner, but it's it's the worst part of the office. <laughs> I, the view is better from there, right? <laughs> yeah, my, my, my advice is, uh, you know, I tell it to, to my team, and some people will misinterpret this and um, uh, you know, as something bad, but for the early part of my career, it was very much a ask for forgiveness, not permission, Right. meaning that you have to really take some risk to see yeah. what works, what doesn't work. If you're waiting yeah. for somebody else to approve your idea, no one's gonna do. No, no one's gonna bother to do that, and no yeah. one's gonna or take the risk. Yeah. Yeah. Affirmation because being an entrepreneur is risky. If it wasn't right. risky, everyone would be doing it. And then right. second, you have to, you know, your lifestyle needs to really be in pace, or ideally even, in, uh, you know, not completely in pace with your entrepreneurial work and like building companies as most of most people who have done it knows it takes 10 years to be an overnight success you're not, uh, not <laughs> 10,000 hours yeah yeah you're not living <laughs> large day one right so that's right you have um, cash flow is the only thing that matters if you're building a company yeah. before anything else because it doesn't right. matter how valuable you are on paper if cash flow is not in pace with your um, you know, operational needs, then you will have uh, to downsize or reset. Right. Or uh, so, you know, from for me, um, like you have to balance enthusiasm with getting the skill sets mm. to um, to really be able to go um, to go at this yourself. And it's much better to do it with a business partner or a um, you know somebody that can share thought leadership and um, be a soundboard to where you're going versus um, doing it as a solo act indefinitely. Yeah, yeah. 
And I say this, you know, after uh, a lot of my career has been either being part of uh, very small focused teams or uh, being solo. However, the most successful companies um, in the in the space, I still think, are built by, um, you know, people who are not just um, on a solo mission, but uh, who work as a team. And if right. you can uh, uh, do that and build uh, mechanisms for scale, you can balance family life, uh, work yeah. work life and stress, and lifestyle to build valuable companies and enjoy enjoy every stage of it. Mm. Amen. Amen. Marcel, both a CEO and founder of 10X Beta, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brandt, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.go4roi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.